The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to In Discussion. Our guest today, Dr. Jerry Schubel, Chief Executive Officer of the Aquarium of the Pacific, is a well-respected and long-standing scientist dedicated to the protection of the world's oceans and marine life, talking to the future of our ecosystems career in oceanic systems and dilapidating trends influenced by the harsh treatment of human activities. My guest today has enjoyed a long career in ocean environmental protection and study of ecosystems around the world. As a major contributor to the quest for knowledge and wisdom in understanding our ecosystems, he plays a leading role in finding solutions to counter the destruction of those systems and marine life across the world's oceans. He joins me today from the Aquarium of the Pacific in Long Beach, of which he holds the position of CEO and developer of ideas to improve our world's oceans. Jerry, welcome. Thank you, David. It's good to be with you. Thank you. Well, Jerry, I think what uh, we would like to do in this first program is uh, go through a, a brief uh, review of your career and your background uh, prior to entering into the world of the aquarium. And uh, what I'd like to do is just start off uh, briefly with your, your early days and growing up in Michigan and, and uh, your memories of, of that period. Okay. I grew up in a, a small town. Port Austin, Michigan. It's at the tip of the thumb of Michigan, right on Lake Huron. And, and actually, for most of my youth, I lived about three miles from there in a resort called Point of Barks. It's a beautiful area, a summer resort, and my dad was the superintendent. thousand acres, and it ran along Lake Huron, all woods, ponds, and then uh, the lake. And for three months of the year, we had quite a few summer people there, but for nine months of the year, the total population of that community never exceeded eight. And so we had it to ourselves, and it was an amazing place to grow up and to get acquainted with nature. And uh, I was born in a town a few miles from there called Bad Axe, Michigan. And people who know me say that when they found out where I was born, that it explains a lot. Did you find out in those early days what your passion was to be in life, Jerry, given the surroundings? Well, I, I knew that I was interested in science, and I knew I was interested in nature, uh, and the, the water and the lake played a, an important part. It was, it was later that I really got interested in uh, the ocean. But my mother was a teacher, and she had a huge Im influence on me and what my interests ultimately became. So your first step in your career was to attend Alma College, uh, which I understand was fairly local. It was, uh, yes, and I graduated from a very small high school, Port Austin High School, the, and uh, that's really, I guess, where I got my initial interest in science and mathematics. And in my graduating class, there were only 13, so if, and if you weren't in the top 10, you were in trouble. <laughs> small, small school, no foreign languages were taught. There was an excellent math teacher, 
but uh, when I was a senior, there was no physics teacher, and state law required that every high school graduate take physics. And I can remember on the first day of school being invited down to the principal's office, and I wondered what I could possibly have done wrong on the very first day of school. And when I got there, the coach was there, and the principal said to the coach and to me that uh, the coach would be responsible for teaching the physics, but he wanted, he, the principal, wanted me to help. I had been a pretty good student, and that was where I really began to learn physics because I was expected to help teach the class. And then obviously that, that took you into the, more into the scientific area? Yes, absolutely. And, and to, to both science and, and teaching and my love for teaching uh, started, I guess, then. And, and there's no way to, better to learn a subject than to have to teach. Now, your next transition was obviously Harvard University. What was the catalyst uh, to take you there? That must have been a huge leap in the, the academic environment. Well, yes, it was. And uh, for a guy from a small town in Michigan, now there was the stop, as you mentioned, at Alma College on the way to Harvard. And Alma is a small liberal arts college in the center of the state. At that time, there were about 800 students. I graduated from there. And I was given a Sloan scholarship to go to Harvard in what was called a Master of Arts in Teaching program because I wanted to be a high school teacher like my mother. And because I had had a good background, when I got to Harvard, I had an awful lot of freedom in terms of what I could take. And so I spent most of the year studying cognitive psychology and how people learn and the conditions that promote learning. And I have to say that probably to this day is the single most intellectually stimulating year of my entire life. That learning that you refer to, that, that human position... How has that developed over the years? I mean, these were very different times. Have you noticed that th- that whole enterprise of understanding the, the human psyche ha- has had to change because the, the world has changed so so much now? Oh, yes, absolutely. When uh, the, the teacher as an authoritarian f- figure in the classroom has, has changed, uh, how... People, whether they're your students or your colleagues, view view you. And I think one of the sad things is that uh, our teachers are not held in as high a regard as they should be because they shape the lives of everyone who comes in contact with them. And I spent only one year teaching high school physics and math, and it was in a suburban city around outside of Boston, excellent school system. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And um, I had the principal's son in my physics class. He didn't do as well as he should have. And I wasn't fired, but it was very clear that uh, some people there thought I might be better off at a different line of work. And another opportunity arose. I had was given a fellowship to go to Johns Hopkins University to pursue graduate studies in uh, oceanography. And so I've been very fortunate throughout my life to have a, a series of opportunities come along at critical times. What was the social structure, that, the, or the differences of the social structure that you noticed in academia between those three institutions? Well, Alma College was a small college, so all the professors knew you. They took an interest in you. 
And if you uh, ever started in any way not to be performing as well as you should, somebody would bring it to your attention. Harvard, big university, much uh, less personal, um, stimulating, though, because of the quality of the minds and the, the, the outstanding array of offerings. Johns Hopkins, small university, if you take away the medical school and the School of Public Health, the rest of the university is quite small. So in, in many ways, it more resembled Alma College, although it was made up of uh, very distinctive scholars. And, and in the oceanography department, there was a faculty of five, uh, maybe six at some times, and so they knew exactly whether you were performing. It was intimate, challenging, and for me, coming from a small school in, in Michigan, it was a really good environment, and I was fortunate to have my, as my advisor and my mentor, uh, the uh, chairman of the department, uh, Donald Pritchard. Does it become uh, more insular, the, the, the training that you receive, the, the research that you go through by the time you get to an institution like uh, John Hopkins? No, I wouldn't say it's more insular. It's, I think it was more intimate, but certainly we were involved with uh, institutions around the United States and around the world, and the, uh, my mentor and the other members of the faculty were always looking for opportunities to engage or inv involve their students in these activities. So it was, uh, it, it, it was very impressive, I thought. This uh, educational immersion, if I may term it that way, has, has obviously continued throughout your whole career. Um, but you left John Hopkins and you, you worked at the uh, uh, State University of New York. Um, and I, I note that you have multiple roles there. You're in administration and in scientific work. Um, how did that work for you? Was that a, a, a change of direction, as it were? Yes, but now it, it's interesting when I, after I got my Ph.D., I stayed at Hopkins and I was the associate director of the Chesapeake Bay Institute. And then I was recruited to go to uh, the State University of New York at Stony Brook to be the director of a fledgling center that was called the Marine Sciences Research Center. And to begin with, I can, started functioning just the way I had at Hopkins. I got some research projects, created a small staff, and I was pretty much continuing my the role that, that I had had at Hopkins as an individual researcher. And then about six or seven months after I was there, the uh, state of New York had one of their, seems like their perennial budget crises, and the president of the university called me up one night and said to, to me, Jerry, I realize we've just recruited you, but uh, I have to tell you that we're going to have to eliminate one or two of our organized research units. And your Marine Sciences Research Center is on the list of candidates. And he told me that we had about two months to come up with a plan as to how we were going to make it a distinctive center. And in retrospect, it's the best thing that ever happened to me because it forced me to think not as an individual scientist, but my role as an administrator and as a director of how I was going to lead that particular unit. And we worked very hard, and we went from having a faculty of five when I got there to a faculty of about 50 by the time I left. 
And so that was one of the the best things that ever happened to me, although I'd, I certainly wouldn't have thought so at the time. The Chesapeake Bay Institute is clearly very important to you. Um, and obviously, you, you, uh, this was involved uh, both in a literal sense and a, a scientific sense in your publications. Uh, what are the memories uh, that, that you have specifically to, to that, uh, that, that time? Well, the Chesapeake Bay is a magnificent estuary. It's the largest estuary in the United States, one of the largest in the world, and it's actually a complex of the, the main body of the bay with all of the tributary estuaries. And so it was an ideal laboratory to learn about coastal and estuarine processes and how you accommodate multiple and conflicting uses of humans with coastal water bodies. I used to spend about 100 days a year on Chesapeake Bay, grew to love it, still do to this day, and not just as a scientist, but I began then to do lots of photography, and I ultimately published a book called The Living Chesapeake, which was a collection of photographs and essays. Someday I'd love to go back and write another book called The Chesapeake Revisited, because it's a very different bay today than it was back when I was there 30-some years ago. And I think it's, it has a lot of lessons on how we need to approach and manage and rehabilitate these coastal water bodies. Now, we, is it different because of the, the, the people that inhabit that area now, or is it di uh, different because of ge geographical uh, changes or environmental changes? Well, I think it, it's, it's certainly a, the environmental changes are what have, is so dramatic, but it's driven by an increased population in the watershed and uh, all of the, the waste that come into the Chesapeake Bay from a large, very large and heavily populated watershed. And so it, it very clearly shows that it's hum individuals and what are called non-point source uh, pollution, uh, that is distributed sources of pollution rather than industries, that remain the challenge uh, to this day, we run off from farms, from lawns and urban areas, streets, parking lots. We've done a good job, I think, of managing the point sources, that is the, the industries and the municipal wastewater inputs. We've done a much less good job on those non-point sources. And that's not true only of Chesapeake Bay, but it's true around the world. Around this time, you were helping to develop strategies through advances in science and technology uh, to uh, allow people to live more in harmony uh, with that coastal environment. Was that successful in the long term or are there still uh, challenges ahead? Well, I think we had some successes, but there certainly are many, many challenges ahead. And uh, I had a wonderful group of colleagues at Stony Brook and then in institutions around the country and around the world. So we've learned an awful lot. Um, I think we're not limited by our lack of understanding. We're limited by the lack of political will more than anything else, because moving forward with the kinds of programs that we need to move forward with, it's not science. They're not science limited. They're not even money limited in most cases. But it's political will because it calls for sacrifices. Uh, so effectively, it's calling for a, 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 a profound change in people's lifestyles. Exactly. That's exactly right. Um, now, 
you you moved on as provost uh, in the 80s. Uh, can you speak to the focus and interest in the humanities there and particularly e- expand upon that social analysis that you talk about in your in your biography? Okay, yes. I was... Uh, I, I went there as the director, and then it became the director and dean of marine sciences. And then the next step, I was asked to be the vice president for research and the dean of the graduate school. And I was only in that position for less than a year, and I was asked to become the provost of the university, and I agreed that I would do it for three years. And we, we were fortunate at the time that the state had a new initiative called the Graduate and Research Initiative, so there was some money to do some things. And we, one of the things that we decided to do was to create several interdisciplinary institutes that would bring together scholars from across the university to focus on interdisciplinary issues. We did one in economics and social change. We did one in Arts and Humanities Institute. We did one in the topical atmospheric research. And the challenge, again, was to bring scholars from home departments to do their work collaboratively within these institutes. And that's, that, those are hard things to, to do. Most of those institutes, though, exist to this day some 30 years later, so I think there was some success. And most of the problems that we face in society and most of the opportunities, I think, are along or across disciplinary fields. And so if we can get people to collaborate across these disciplines, that's where the major breakthroughs come whether it's biophysics or bioengineering and arts and humanities and the sciences. And, and that's what I particularly enjoy, trying to affect some of these partnerships. I, I suppose that in this period between uh, growing up in Michigan and going through academia as a student and, and then becoming a provost, uh, you're on both now, now at this stage, you're on both sides of the fence. You're, you've gone from being a student to being on the other side of faculty. Um, what are the, the, the memories there? How, how do you see your thinking process change? Uh, and how do you see the students changing over that period where perhaps you were thinking of different things that they are now? Well, I think, though, at the time you, you probably are noticed big differences, but human beings, all of us, are wonderfully adaptive. And um, I think the biggest changes are when you go from being a researcher, an individ- independent individual research scholar, where you're success is measured by the papers you publish, the number of students you have, the amount of sponsored research. Then you become an administrator, a dean, and your success is measured much less by what you do as an individual than what the, you, the individuals within your department accomplish as a group. And, and that requires a change in your own value system as to how you evaluate yourself. And that, I think all of us, struggle with that a little bit because most of us who go into academia and end up in administrative positions, we were never trained to be managers or leaders. And so some of us, most of us probably stumble in those transitions. But once you get across it, 
There's nothing more rewarding than being able to see young scholars thrive and go on to important positions. And that's really the, the most rewarding of all. That would take me on to how do you deal with different cultures? I've noted that you were uh, involved as an honorary professor for some time at the East China University at Shanghai. Um, my goodness me, that, that's another um, huge step. Uh, how, how did you see the environment and science perceived in that culture? How, how was it different to the one that you had seen uh, back in the United States? Well, first of all, the, uh, we had had a couple of the scholars from the East China Normal University who spent sabbaticals with us at Stony Brook, so I knew those individuals. And it certainly is true that their cultures and how they view the environment are it's very different than it is in the United States. And the decision-making authority is much more centralized there. You could never build the Three Gorges Dam here in the United States. Um, but they, there still, I think, is a sense of the importance of the environment to achieving and sustaining economic prosperity. And um, sometimes that leads to large-scale changes of the environment, um, which are difficult for some of us to to accept. But with China, they have, again, amazing collection of coastal water bodies, a huge population, and the uh, the Yangtze River and the what used to be called the Yellow River and in China it's called the Wanghou, those those rivers are so unlike any other rivers in the world and particularly any in the United States. It was an opportunity to learn different systems. Too many of us, I think, focus too much on one water body. We get to know it very well, but we fail to be able to put it in perspective of problems in other regions, other countries, and other cultures. And so whenever you have an opportunity, I think, to study in another culture or another environment, that's something that you should do. What is the view uh, in countries like China at the moment uh, in the environmental area, in sustainability? Are they, uh, do you think that they are as active as we may be at the moment in, in looking at this as a uh, a very critical area to to be um, to be looked at, uh, you know, in a very uh, wide fashion. Well, I think it all depends on what you look at. They're, they're more, much more aggressive in their pursuit of green technologies than we are in the United United States. They're much more aggressive in pursuit of of things uh, um, such as renewable energy sources and also nuclear energy than we are. And they can do that because the decisions are centralized and they're not in the United States. So they're, they're probably more willing to sacrifice some environmental qualities for economic sustainability than we would be. And I think that's shown in some of their, their water policies. It's so it's a it's a mixed it a mixed bag. But then again, of course, if you look at the recent history of their development of nuclear power, it appears that they have a much easier and expedited process in being able to build and qualify nuclear power stations than we do here with with so much red tape. No, that's exactly right. They they will open fifty new nuclear plants by twenty twenty. And uh, it would be difficult to even get a permit to, to build one in the United States in that period of time. 
now within the last week or two, the President of the United States has endorsed loans for two uh, nuclear reactors in Georgia. But it's a very long, protracted process in the United States, and I think somehow we're going to have to uh, get much more effective in removing some of the regulatory roadblocks. And it isn't just with nuclear. It's with solar. It, it's with biofuels um, and with, with winds. So we're, if, if we're going to be a player and if we're going to realize the economic gains as well as the environmental gains from these renewable energies, we're going to have to get much smarter at it than we've been. What do we have to do, Jerry, uh, as human beings at this stage? I mean, it was a great privilege to spend time with you this weekend um, at, at the, the, the 5D event. Uh, what is it that we have to do to impart knowledge, to provide knowledge to the general public, as it were, so that they can become involved, to have a say in this, to be able to um, look at, at heads of industry, look at politicians, um, and create the accountability to uh, produce a, a quicker rate, uh, a quicker rate of change. Um, how are we going to do that um, urgently? Well, I think it, it, uh, we're going to have to do a much better job of engaging the public in open forums of discussion, so that we can explore these ideas and why they, why they're needed, and. Um, I think it's it's a very inefficient process, but I think we have to be willing to be inefficient if we want to be effective in, in making this happen. So open discussion, the more of it, the better, looking at putting everything on the table, nothing is off limits, asking what the, the benefits are, the costs are, the risks are, and in giving the public the information that they need in order to make good decisions. And I think we can do that without prescribing what those decisions should be, but we have an obligation to equip them with the kinds of scientific knowledge that uh, exists. And, and the media often aren't very helpful because there's a, they feel the obligation that if you have one person on speaking for uh, about the issues of climate change, that then you would have an obligation to have a skeptic of climate change on to give the other point of view. The public gets confused, though, because that, as you know, the center of gravity within the scientific community is, is very strong in the belief that climate change is occurring and that humans are a primary driver. So you can't have one person speaking from that perspective and then another from the skeptical perspective and, and, and suggest that there is a, this uh, terrible disagreement. There's not. What about the issue of profitability in industry? Um, do you regard that uh, as, a, as an opposition at this point to making further progress? Um, because there's obviously a drive with industry to continue that profitability. Um, and was, as we've seen by the many uh, G5 summits, G4 summits, and the, the, uh, the Kyoto uh, um, ratification that really hasn't happened, that uh, profitability still seems to get in the way of, of progression in the environmental issues. Well, I think profitability, companies that aren't profitable aren't going to stay in business. 
So profitability by itself is, is not enough, but I think profitability is certainly one key ingredient that comes in with sustainability and taking the long view. And I think that uh, corp- publicly traded corporations, at least, will listen to their short shareholders, and they want to be sure that there is sustainability, profitability, but they also want to do the right thing, and they need to take the long view. So I don't see that that's a, an impediment um, to, to social change. I think the bigger thing is to get more people in the general public around the world to have the information that they need to make better decisions. And I think then corporations will respond. I was just at a very interesting couple of panels at the meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And one of these was talking about using guilt and shame to get corporations and individuals to change. I don't think they ever mentioned positive reinforcement in that panel. And yet we all know that change is more likely to come from positive reinforcement than it is from either guilt or shame. And so I think what we should be doing is looking for those bright spots, the success stories, whether they're corporations, governments, uh, organizations, individuals, and highlight what they're doing and use them as role models and um, support them in their initiatives. And I think then the marketplace would drive others to get in line with them. I I would certainly say that uh, there is surely a need for uh, companies to remain profitable so that they can open up um, opportunities and a greater lifestyle to to people in third world countries. And of course, that's vital, I suppose, isn't it? Because unless you do that, um, people in third world countries aren't even going to think about the environment anyway, because they're basically finding out a, a way to live from day to day. So... Uh, it, I suppose it's a question, Jerry, of, of finding a medium or finding some sort of convergence where um, industry can become um, uh, armed to to create uh, that possibility of drawing more people in around the world to, to focus on the environment as, as the, the vital ingredient to continuing. And I think that's right. And I think we, we have to keep reminding ourselves that human beings are part of nature and we depend upon what are called ecosystem services for our very own survival ecosystem services are those things those services that give us clean air clean water rich productive soils and so on and when you look around the world there are an awful lot of people that would be they're not meeting their own basic needs for existence. That is, they don't have places to live, they don't have access to clean water, they don't know where their next meal is going to come from. And if I'm living in those conditions, in one sense, I'm a good green environmentalist because I don't place much of a burden on the environment. But on the other hand, I I am not going to care very much about endangered species or anything else because I'm worried about what's going to happen to me and my family tomorrow. So Unless we can get the people out of what might be called Maslow's basement of hi- the hierarchy of needs, we're not going to get them to aspire to these larger societal goals of a better earth for humans and for all living things. Is it, a, is it possibly uh, a policy that could be 
that could be looked upon by the government here in in light of the dreadful economy that we have and the unemployment and the dilapidation of, of, of basic manufacturing? Um, a, a sort of uh, uh, transition or a, a similar idea to the, the way that the government approached this back in 1929 to put people back into work. Is it that the government could be uh, more effective by now at this stage of putting people back into work but putting them back into work in conservation in environmental areas on and, and, on on mass as it right. were and as you know there have been proposals for environmental cores and so on uh, yes I, and there is a little bit of that happening through stimulus funds to create green jobs but there's an awful lot more that could be done to uh, to work to restore nature, to transition to sustainable non-fossil fuels. Um, government has to play a role, and I think government is, is not providing the kind of leadership right now that we need. In your view, um, and I know at the weekend that the one of the major uh, subjects or topics was uh, the, the ocean, uh, and the marine life in, in our world's oceans. Uh, how pivotal is it to our long-term survival to concentrate on the oceans now? Well, I think it's vital that we, that we concentrate on the oceans. Uh, if you look at the oceans, they are the thermostat uh, that maintains the temperature of, of the Earth. They provide more than half of the oxygen that we breathe. They're an important source of, of protein for many of the people in the world and where we still have a lot of chronic problems in the ocean habitat destruction overfishing destructive fishing pollution and now we have that whole new set of problems associated with climate change the warming of the upper ocean and ocean acidification and so we're causing entire ocean ecosystems to come unraveled and um, We've got to be concerned about this because th this is something, once you set this in motion, there, those are things that are hard to, to stop and, and turn around. We can stop, if we have the political will, habitat destruction and overfishing. But when we add CO2 to the atmosphere, it's there for the order of a century before it gets transferred to the ocean where it remains for over a thousand years. And when you add CO2 to the ocean, you change the acidity of the ocean. You lower its pH. And now you begin to have effects on any animals, whether they're plankton or coral reefs, any animals that depend upon removing calcium carbonate to make shells. And we're making it difficult for them to make a living. So we've put in, in motion these things that even if we stopped all further emissions of greenhouse gases tomorrow. The ocean will continue to warm, become more acidic, and sea level will continue to rise. We have to be concerned. Is there any way that politically, uh, or, or even in a, a wider business sense, that we could pin this down to the uh, shipping lanes, to the burning of fossil fuels, to the export-import that we've seen that, that possibly started uh, two or three hundred years ago uh, in, in colonization. Um, is there perhaps an idea that we could 
uh, have countries um, create their own raw materials, produce those raw materials, retain those raw materials and be self-sufficient to cut down on the shipping lanes, to cut down on this uh, huge burning of fossil fuels? Well, I think first you'd want to look at what the global uses of fossil fuels are. And I think um, transportation for automobiles in the United States, heating and cooling buildings, those are the two big ones. It's true that ships, they not only burn a lot of fuel, they burn the the dirtiest fuel possible to save money, low-grade bunker oil. But on the other hand, if you look at it from the perspective of the fuel burned per ton per mile, ships are far and away the most efficient and and most environmental-friendly mode of transportation that we have, far better than, than trucks far better than airplanes. Now, if you push it the way you were suggesting, we could become more reliant and we have less global trade. That would be one approach. I, uh, I don't think we're going to stop globalization, so I think it would be better to look for cleaner ships, cleaner fuels, whether they're nuclear-powered, and there are even moves now to have ships that go back and use as an auxiliary source of energy wind and have sails on them. So there are ways to clean up our shipping, I think, and so we can still have exports and imports and live in a globalized society. Just um, uh, veering off here for a second, uh, I know that in 1998 you were awarded an honorary doctorate from the uh, Massachusetts Maritime Academy. Um, How did that – what was the implication of that on your career? That must have been a a wonderful moment. Did that uh, open up again uh, your opportunities uh, to invest your your career more in, in the oceans? It was a wonderful. It was a wonderful honor. I uh, back then I was. Uh, I think that was about the time I was the chair of the Marine Board for the National Research Council, which is concerned with the nation's maritime industries, and I think it was a, partly a recognition of of that. I've been concerned about the U.S. as a maritime nation for a long time because. That's how we got our start, and we were a a leader in shipbuilding, in uh, the kinds of U.S. flag ships that plied the world ocean, and now uh, we are certainly not a leader in shipbuilding. Most of the ships that leave and visit our ports um, don't fly U.S. flags, and we still have some of the big ports, but even there, Asia is outdoing us. And, And I think in a globalized world, being a leading maritime nation is very, very important, and uh, I continue to worry about that. And, and we, at our aquarium, brought together leaders a few years ago, and we, we looked at uh, the importance of having the public understand what it means for the nation to lose this leadership as a maritime nation. You obviously uh, decided to um, work in the aquarium arena at Long Beach. What was the decision behind that? Um, what What was the scope or, or the uh, the outcome of that that you saw? Well, I had spent all most of my life trying to figure out how to use science to help solve some of these societal problems, particularly in humans' uses of the ocean. And it, it became very clear to me that we were not limited by our understanding of the oceans. It was by the public understanding of what science had taught us 
and by political will. Aquariums, science centers, museums have this opportunity to operate across the interface between advances in scholarship and the general public. And that's what I saw as the major opportunity. And I was recruited to come to, to Long Beach to be the president of the Aquarium of the Pacific. And, and it was an ideal situation because Southern California, we, we are on what's called the Southern California Bite. It goes down to the Mexican-U.S. border and up to a place called Point Conception. Twenty million people live in this area. We make multiple and conflicting uses of the ocean. We have the two largest ports in the nation. We have offshore oil islands. We, we have uh, so commercial fishing, recreational fishing. And yet this is where beach volleyball was born. We have some of the best beaches, the best surfing in the world. And so here was an opportunity to really try to get the public to understand their relationship to the ocean, to become better stewards, and to be thinking about how we could serve as a model for other areas around the world where their oceans were becoming increasingly urbanized as population grew. I, in a local sense, uh, do you have um, an, an idea, a, a plan or a strategy that actually brings in people from the urban neighborhoods to, to become involved with the oceans? I'm sure that Long Beach is like any other community. I'm, I'm sure that there are people uh, five or ten miles uh, in from the coast who've never even visited the, the ocean. Um, how, how do you bring uh, that sort of culture into this? And that's a very good point because, yes, you're right. We have people that live within Long Beach who have never been to the ocean, even though it may only be two or three miles away. We also have the most ethnically diverse population of any region in the United States, and this is the most ethnically diverse large city in the United States. So one of the things that we started were cultural festivals. And we would turn, on a, on a weekend, we would turn the aquarium over as a platform to a different culture, and the only requirement that we made was that they would have to spend a little bit of the weekend talking about their relationship to the ocean and to the environment. We now have 10 different festivals every year, and we just finished this last week of having an African-American festival during Black History Month. And it's quite remarkable because you have people of all colors, all ages, all backgrounds, and, and you come together and it unifies and builds social capital. Part of our vision for our aquarium is that the greatest threat to natural capital, that is nature, is the unraveling of social capital, which means the relationships between and among people, particularly through networks. And this, this yesterday, there was a drumming circle, and it started with African-Americans doing the drumming, and then as they went along, they would encourage young children of all colors to come and join them and to hit the drums with them. It's a very emotional experience but when by the end when you see the white, yellow, black people all drumming and having fun and hugging each other. That, you can't beat that. Does this possibly support my premise that you have to solve the humanities before you really start looking at the environment? Yes, absolutely. I think for many people in the public, 
the sciences aren't the best way to connect them to these big environmental issues. I think you have to make emotional connections as well as intellectual connections, and I think the, the humanities and art often are more powerful at doing that than the science. So we try to combine art, humanities, science, poetry, literature, music in these various festivals and in other things that we do. What is the delivery in a wider scale that could um, promote this idea of bringing all these, this, these different areas together? Well, I think when we have a festival, obviously, uh, this last weekend, for example, on one day we had 10,000 people. Now, that's not, while it's a large number to come to an aquarium on one day, it, we have to reach hundreds of thousands and eventually millions and billions of people with these big stories. And that's where one, I think, programs like yours expands the reach. And I think films, movies, concerts, um, that's the way we're going to engage people in simple, emotional, powerful stories that will motivate us to change. What are the uh, organizations, the institutions uh, that you work with that, that you feel have a profound contribution in all of these areas? Well, we work with a lot of institutions, colleges, universities, the uh, Art Center College of Design, which is in Pasadena, because, again, we're trying to use art to convey some of these messages. We work with 5D, which is a program that was started by Cal State Long Beach. It's about immersive design, um, and we, we work with a lot of NGOs, other aquariums. So we're, we're very inclusive, I think, in trying to work with individuals, companies, corporations, uh, foundations, and that's one of our strengths, I think. You had mentioned that uh, the general public don't necessarily rely on scientific evidence. Uh, is, there w is there a way to overcome that, given that I'm assuming that we have a huge sense of urgency here now, not only with the environment, but to my mind, with the humanities itself. Well, I think the, the, uh, the, the scientific evidence gives a great sense of urgency. And if you can somehow give it the right frames of reference, the right context, so that people will make an emotional connection to it, but they have a lot of other things that are urgent in their lives, having jobs, enough money to, to pay the rent, the fear of losing their homes. So it's got to be elevated to the level of, of uh, importance that will displace some of the others. And I think while we have different value systems, the one thing that ties us all together is the love for our children and grandchildren and the concern about their futures. And if we can make people realize that what we're doing to the planet is a real threat to the lives that our children and grandchildren will live, then I think we have some chance of making the changes that we need to make and making them on the scale that we need to make them. Are there any current projects that you've been involved in or aware of in this country that have included those very people, including children, uh, to understand 
these environmental issues? Uh, are there any uh, uh, projects that look at uh, sustainability, whether it's land or ocean, um, that th 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 uh, the core premise are, are to reduce that destruction of, of these natural assets? See, I think there are a lot of them. And, and uh, what we have to do, though, is to somehow get all of our organizations to work together to create some kind of, of an interlocking mosaic so that it doesn't appear that we're that individual organizations are competing against each other, but that we're cooperating for this grand vision. And we have not yet done that. I think the pieces are there, but it's going to take some orchestration to get us all working together for some common goals. You, you talk about the, the arts and music, and then on the I suppose on the opposite end of that scale, you have scientists. Um, is it difficult to uh, converge those mindsets? You know, human beings are human beings. They are uh, typically um, uh, egotistical, <laughs> I suppose you could put it. Um, is there a way to uh, um, forge ahead with bringing all these people together to actually... Uh, attain uh, the the premise of real solutions rather than just talk and ideas. Well, and I th this is something that you you've spoken quite eloquently about, and I think uh, to to me that you can you have to be willing to stay at the table long enough or come together around the table frequently enough that even though you differ in your perspectives you begin to trust each other and you can find common ground and i think we we have seen that you can bring artists together with scientists with policy makers and you can make some progress and i think we just now have to scale these efforts up and uh, keep the momentum going as we uh, wind down towards the end of the program uh, what is it uh, anticipated in terms of extinction of a lot of the uh, marine life that we have in our oceans today? Do we have data to suggest that there, there really is uh, a severe problem out there? We have good data and good information, not just on marine species, but on all species. Uh, Ed Wilson, who is the father of the term biodiversity, has said that uh, we will lose 25% of all of the species on the planet by 2050, and there's nothing we can do it about it that we've committed them to to extinction, but that we could lose another 25 percent before the end of the century if we don't take corrective actions. And it, it what human beings have altered the pace of change on the earth so that species are and are not able to evolve rapidly enough to keep up, and individuals are not able to adapt quickly enough to keep up. So the challenge for us, I think, is to slow things down, give nature a chance to catch up, and uh, the, the, a new equilibrium will be set. And I think we have the science and much of the technology to accomplish this. And it will require, though, a, a bold vision for what we want our Earth to be like at some point in the future, and then to get buy-in to that, that vision and it will be partnerships of scientists and artists and poets and humanists and uh, musicians uh, and politicians that will have to make this happen. 
Now, does an organization like uh, the Aquarium of the Pacific have a pivotal role in uh, the survival of those species that could possibly become extinct in the next 20, 25 years? I think, yes, but only if we can raise the level of concern so that others uh, will be moved to to take actions. Uh, And that's what we try to do through when we convene aquatic forums and we pose difficult challenges, uh, whether about ocean acidification and uh, offshore aquaculture, ocean desalination. And um, so, yes, I think that if we can serve as a role model, then we will be making a difference. And and finally, what do you think uh, the is the importance is that we should place on young people now, possibly more than in in any other generation, to support this uh, and to take a leading role, not to just follow us, but actually take a leading role in these issues. Well, I think that the, as Stuart Brand said the other day, this is their century. So we have to give them the opportunity to help shape things. But I think as the elder statesmen, we also have a responsibility to help them be able to play those roles and to listen to them and to help them um, lead and affect change. And finally, Jerry, uh, looking back over your career uh, from those wonderful beginnings in Michigan, what are the most wonderful memories that you have uh, that you take with you um, in this incredible career? Well, my mother used to tell my brother and me when we were growing up, the greatest gift that one can give or receive is, is the opportunity to be involved in something important. I've been very fortunate throughout my career to have opportunities come along at critical times. And I think that the, the times that I have gained the, the most satisfaction are when I have served as a facilitator in bringing diverse groups of people together around a common theme, a common issue, and we've stayed together long enough and fought and argued long enough to come up with a a solution to a particular problem. Those are the ones that have brought me the greatest joy. Dr. Jerry Schubel uh, from the um, Aquarium of the Pacific, a scientist and uh, wonderful carer uh, of the environment and the oceans, I do thank you for your uh, time today in, in sharing your, your wonderful life and career with us. Thank you, David. I've enjoyed it. And to our listeners, I do hope that you uh, as well have enjoyed this program as much as I have. And uh, I'm sure that we all hope that we have a wonderful environment in the future that we can be proud of. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this wonderful world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 